This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. We are considering 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're now in chapter, the end of chapter 6, and uh, hopefully I didn't oversell the sermon with all this talk of PG-13, uh, but it is a topic that we're dealing with here that I wanted to be sensitive to, the differing ages of folks in our community, and the reason why we're looking at 1 Corinthians, the reason why we pick up the Bible and, and study God's Word and, and look at it and try to live our lives in light of it is because we need to be recalibrated. Uh, we need to order our lives around something that isn't just temporary, uh, that's based on what the culture is saying at the moment, but what is actually eternal. And we believe that, that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so while it's using the voice of Paul and the personality of Paul and the context of Paul into the life of that church that's in Corinth with uh, the temple of Aphrodite, they live in the shadow of that with the commercialism and uh, the culture that they're engaging in, uh, it's actually something that God gave to Paul to reveal to him and he put it down and it's been preserved uh, by the Holy Spirit through the church in the word that we read today. And so it's something that is beyond us. It doesn't mean that we can't understand it. It just means it wasn't created by us. And that's what gives us, that's what gives it authority in our lives that we are to order our lives uh, in light of it. And that's what this recalibration uh, is all about uh, this morning. So that's what we're going to continue to do. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness this morning and for the opportunity to hear from your word. I pray, Lord, that first and foremost people would see Jesus. And that as they uh, hear your word and the words that I say, that what they hear and see and experience is more of Jesus Christ. More of his grace, more of his mercy, more of his love, more of his power to transform, that they would see Jesus and they would experience the love that Jesus has for each of us who have been called by him. We pray, Lord, that as we experience and enjoy that love and mercy, that we would also then be able to respond in ways that demonstrate we've experienced that love. So God, help us to hear and to listen, but also to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. When Brandon and I first got married, uh, she was teaching at a school in Orlando, and I was a student in seminary and needed a little bit of extra income, so I uh, submitted an application to be a substitute teacher. Now, this was a school that I had been to before when I was a, a youth director at, a, at, a, at, at First Pres Orlando, so I knew the, the principal. His name was Mac. Uh, we had a bit of a relationship because I had gone on campus and had lunch with kids and whatever, and so I filled out my application. They did a background check, and I thought, you know, hey, I'll, we're all set here. Let's go. And, and uh, Brandy said, um, Mac wants to talk to you. I don't really know why, but normally they just, you know, you do the application. We need subs all the time, but he wants to talk to you. I'm like, okay. So we didn't live far. I'm, I set up a time to meet with Mac and uh, we go in there. I'm like, hey, you know, how's it going? What's happening? How are things? And he's like, you know, good, good. I'm thinking, what, what's, what's going on? Uh, and he says, does Brandy know you've been divorced? I said, excuse me? Uh, he said, he goes, do you have a drug problem? I'm like, I don't think so. I'm like, what, what, what's going on? He said, well, when you're, we did your background check, 
it says that you've been arrested for selling drugs and that you've been divorced twice. I was like, that's news to me, man. So I said, well, you know, my name's Matt Miller. Miller is the eighth most common last name in America. And for 35 years, Matthew was the top three boys' names. There are literally 4,000 Matt Millers in America. When you ran the background check, on what data did you run the background check? He said, we put in Matt Miller. <laughs> I was like, well, you know there's more than one, right? I've met some myself. There's one in town. I guess he works for Comcast Cable. So it was a case of mistaken identity, right? Here I am in the flesh, uh, haven't been divorced, haven't sold drugs, don't have a drug problem, and he was doing the right thing by wanting to check me out. But there was a bit of confusion because when he ran the data, he ran it the wrong way. So I had to go down to the to the city, whatever, and get a form that fit and filled it out and showed, like, I'm not this person. I, and I looked at it, I'm like, realized, like, we have different social security numbers. And this guy at the time, he was 55. I was probably in my late 30s. Like, it wasn't doesn't take a detective to figure this out but it was kind of a funny thing he thought I was someone else and the person that he thought I was led that person to live a certain life that I wasn't actually living now I never did become a substitute teacher at the school I don't even know what happened I got other another job but it was a sense that like here I am standing before him and he thought I was a certain person and I was actually someone else so what is it that defines us as people in this passage uh, that we're reading today, and going back to last week, Paul says this phrase six times. Do you not know? He uses this, uh, this question format to get the Corinthians to think about who they actually are. Do you not know, he says. We'll read through these and you'll see four of the times that he uses this. He's asking them a question of identity. Because when you know who you are, it leads you to live in a certain way. And if you think you're someone else, then you're going to live in a different way as well. What defines you? Has anyone ever made an assumption about you based on your name or your gender or your color or the language that you speak? How do you define yourself? American, Southern, tall, short, conservative, liberal, joyful, grumpy, introverted, extroverted. Now we can celebrate all the unique ways that God has made us to be, but none of those things ultimately define us. They are parts of who we are. But you see, if I think of myself as uh, a beautiful person, and only as a beautiful person, then what happens when I become less beautiful because of, the, the, uh, because of gravity <laughs> over time and aging? I begin to lose myself. If I consider myself to be successful in whatever area or venue that I exist in, what happens if I experience failure? What happens if I lose my job? Does my identity suffer because I'm not successful in the way that I've always thought myself to be successful? But if I know who I am in Christ, then how does that affect how I represent myself and how I live in the world today? 
Paul, and as he talks about this challenging subject, as he speaks clearly to the Corinthians on a really important matter for them and an important matter for us, he's challenging them to think about who they were, who they are, and how then they are to live. Who they were, who they are, and then how they are to live. It's the past, the present, and the future in the life of, uh, of the believer. Now remember uh, our cultural context here. The, the, the Corinthians lived in the shadow of the temple of Aphrodite. There was a significant amount of temple prostitution going on. Not only was it something that the local community participated in, it actually brought a lot of people into town. It was a place to buy and sell and trade and to participate in what was a worship practice. It was part of their worship experience to participate with the prostitutes. Things are different, aren't they? But it was just part of how they operated. It's likely something they thought was good for them to engage in. Now, it's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to identify that because our church experience is pretty different. But we look back on different aspects or eras or seasons in the life of the church, and we can say to the Corinthians, well, that's crazy. How could you have that viewpoint? But the church also sent legions of soldiers to go conquer people with swords to try to bring them into the church during, into the, church during the Crusades. And we would look at that and say, well, that's crazy. Why would you do that? But it was something that, that happened. We could look at the, the wars between the Catholics and the Protestants where blood was spilled and say, well, how could you do that? Or we could look at the African slave trade and say, well, how could you do that? But literally, there are uh, well-known, faithful Bible expositors who would get up in pulpits and say, slavery is a biblical thing. It's the order of creation. And yet now we would say, that's totally wrong. And here is Paul addressing a cultural blind spot for the Corinthians. And it's so helpful for us to look at Paul and how he addresses the Corinthians in their cultural blind spot because we have them too. But you know why we can't see them? They're blind spots. And so that when we look at something eternal, when we look at the Word of God, that allows us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to see through our culture, through our identities, into our one identity, who is Jesus Christ, to help us to see where are the areas where we need to be faithful to what the Bible says. So Paul starts out reminding the people of who they were. Let's look at verse 9. Here's the first time he asks uh, that question. Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Paul is saying this is who you were to the Corinthians. It reminds them that yes, they were this way, this is who you were. 
Here he's just sharing a list of lifestyles that were common outside the Christian community. He's not addressing those who may occasionally fall into these sins, but for those for whom this sinful lifestyle was a pattern in life. It was their way of being. He uses the word sexually immoral, which is porneia, I shared a couple of weeks ago, which captures all manner of sexual sin, any sinful expression outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. He shares fornication or lust or homosexuality. He he uses the word for idolatry, which is the worship of idols. He shares adultery. Even men who practice homosexuality, likely referring to the male prostitutes who existed in the temple. He talks about those who steal, the greedy, those who are addicted to alcohol or other substances, revilers, someone who slanders or tells lies about other people, swindlers or those who cheat. Anyone who has this their way of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not members of God's family. This, this way, their way, reveals that they're not in Christ and they will not experience the blessing of God in this life or in the life to come. And Paul says what? Such were some of you. That's who you were. That way of life, selfish, self-seeking, self-interested, only interested in getting what I want. Do what I like, do what I will. Find my own truth. Make my own path. Let my conscience be my guide. If it feels good, do it. These are the same things that are happening today in our culture. This is not just a Corinthian problem in the first century. This is the, the way of the world. Do what thou wilt. It's how they live, though, Paul said. And while Paul is primarily addressing sexual immorality in this section, we see that there's lots of different ways that one can be sinful and be outside the kingdom of God. Sin, what is it? It's missing the mark. That standard that God has created for us through His Holy Word. Some of us are tempted to sin sexually. Some are given to too much drink. Others, it's an idol of our reputation. The significance that we get from work. uh, The joy of having a beautiful family that everyone sees as perfect. My children have good manners, and they're doing well in school. That's the most important thing to me. Not whether they really know the Lord and are authentically real and vulnerable. There are many things that can be idols in our lives. Anytime we get our identity or our satisfaction or ultimate ultimate joy from something instead of God, we're committing idolatry. And that was true for the Corinthians, and that was true for us. That's who we were. But that's not who we are. Let me just say this. Right? We're talking about some uh, challenging things here. Right? Sexual morality. John Stott said that everybody is sexually broken. Let me just speak a word of grace in here. That there, there's no person likely in the world that has never struggled with some kind of sexual sin in thought, word, or deed. And here's the good news. Is that in Christ, we're forgiven. Everything that you've done in the past, any struggle that you're currently facing, whatever you do in the future, under Christ you are forgiven. You can experience His grace and His redemption. And that's the most powerful, important thing that we need to remember. That was the beginning prayer, is that you would see Jesus. As we're confronted with the Word of God and the the idolatry or the sexual sin that's in our lives, that it would move us to say, I need Jesus because He forgives me and He loves me and He embraces me no matter what it is that I've done. And that's the good news. 
But, friends, that's who you were. This is who you are. Look at verse 11. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Listen to that. Washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of God. Believers in Jesus have been cleansed from sin through faith in Christ, which is symbolized so beautifully in baptism. This is the place from where your identity comes. Not the things that you've done, but the thing that Jesus did. You know that feeling when you get ready for an important event? You get all cleaned up and you're looking, you're looking good for the big party. You spend a lot of time getting your, uh, your, uh, your clothing ready, got your hair done, both of them in the right place. You, uh, you want to do anything you can to avoid a spill. You avoid a puddle or a slobbery dog that may just want to come and give you one goodbye kiss as you head to the party. Or a kid with a sticky finger. How many of you guys have had that, you're, out, you're ready to go and there's one little, little hole and all of a sudden, boom, right there on the shoulder, you know? Some people are living that reality right now. Okay. You're clean and you want to stay that way. We've been clean. We've been sanctified and are being sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart from the world for a special purpose and in a special relationship with God. Not that you're perfect, but you're set apart. It's like those uh, fancy dishes that you use uh, on Thanksgiving. Or it's a special occasion for the best bottle of wine. It's set aside for an important moment. And that's what you are as a member of the family of God through the person of Jesus Christ. You've also been justified. You've been declared innocent before God. Your sins don't count against you. Uh, so you're free to mess up and not feel guilty because you aren't guilty. Your guilt has been paid for in Christ. And so these blessings, how do they come to us? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit applies these things. As we think about our sinfulness and brokenness, we look at Jesus as powerful and good and merciful, and then we are released from the sin, and we can respond in obedience. We are fundamentally different than the world around us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. He says also, later on, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Think about it. What was the temple? That was the place where the Spirit of God dwelt. And only certain priests who had done ceremonial washings were allowed to enter because it was a holy place. But now the Holy Spirit dwells within the life of every believer, making you holy. We now are the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. It's an absolutely amazing thing for every believer. And not only that, but in 19, says, You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. You're not worth nothing. You were bought with a price. What price is that? It's the cost of God's own Son. The Catechism says, You're not your own, but you belong body and soul to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Your soul and your body belongs to God. So what you do with your soul, what you do with your body, actually matters. Here, Paul is countering a common misunderstanding within the Corinthian church in verse 12. 
First they say, all things are lawful for me. This is a phrase that they would repeat. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Another phrase in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both and the other. But Paul says the body is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. He's countering these these uh, myths or these phrases that were common in, in Corinth. Hey, any, I can do anything I want. See, the problem in the Corinthian church is that they had experienced the gospel and they said, well, if I'm free in Christ, then I can do anything I want. That's an over-realization of what the gospel says. And contrasted with the church in Galatia, they have an under-realization. The Galatians were saying, these guys were coming in from outside saying, hey, look, you've got to be culturally Jewish. So here's Jesus. Now you have to add on these things. They had an under-realization. The Corinthians had an over-realization to say, well, I can do anything I want. But Paul acknowledges and recognizes that doing whatever you want isn't actually healthy for you. Right? You're free to do whatever you want. Yes? No? Well, both. You're free from the burden of sin eternally, but that doesn't mean that you don't experience the consequences of sin. If I rob a bank, I'll be forgiven. But I'll also go to jail. I can do it. God's not going to send me to hell for robbing a bank. But I'm going to go to jail. If I get caught. And I have a plan not to get caught, okay? <laughs> the plan never works out, though, for anybody, does it? just a reminder, it's better for me to do what God says, to, to, to make my way, to, to have an honest job and not to steal. It doesn't mean that I'm earning my standing before God, it just means I'm saying, yes Lord, I believe that the way that you've prescribed for me to live is a good and healthy thing. It's better for the long-term flourishing of my family if I'm out working and not in jail. Paul then says we shouldn't be dominated by anything. In other words, what should dominate us is desire, yes, but what kind of desire? A desire to serve the Lord. A desire to enjoy Him in such a way that sin is repulsive to us. We worship God with our lives so that we don't give in to the worldliness that's around us. That sin of any kind ultimately leads to bondage. But we're bound by Christ and not the lust of the flesh. The other phrase, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, reveals that the people in Corinth were treating sex as like an appetite that needed to be satisfied. Sensuality is to sex what gluttony is to eating. Both are sinful and bring terrible consequences. But just because we have certain normal desires given by God at creation doesn't mean that we must give in to them and always satisfy them. Uh, sex outside of marriage is destructive while sex in a marriage can be creative and beautiful. A helpful illustration I've used before is that image of a fire in a fireplace. In the confines of the bricks in the fireplace, a fire is a beautiful thing in your living room. It's something to enjoy. It brings warmth. It adds beauty to your life. But if that fire somehow gets out of the fireplace and gets on the carpet or the couch, well then it becomes very bad. The fire, even if it's on the couch, is still warm. It still adds a sense of beauty, but it can also burn the entire house down. And so when we think about our own sexual relationships, keeping that boundary there that God has prescribed or given to us allows it to be the thing that God has designed. 
While there may be excitement and enjoyment in sexual experience outside of marriage, it starts off fine, but in the end it leads to damage. Broken relationships, unwanted pregnancies, fatherlessness, and so on. Does every single fire that gets lit outside a fireplace burn the house down? No. But as the old saying goes, if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. So in light of what God says, it's not who we are, but whose we are. We, we lived a certain way before. Now we're this way. And that impacts and affects how we are to live. If we're fundamentally different, if we've been brought into relationship by Christ, if we've received that grace and mercy, then we're called to live in a different way. He deals with some implications of that. He says, since the, the believer's body is a member of Christ, how can... We be joined to Christ and to sin. He actually says, be joined to a prostitute. So this is really challenging for the Corinthians. Because remember, like this is their way of life. And Paul is saying this to them, not because he's mad at them. I remember at the beginning of uh, chapter 1, he loves the Corinthians. He's wanting to counsel them in the, in the way of flourishing for their lives. He's giving this to them because he cares deeply for them. But some of the Corinthians saw no harm in visiting temple prostitutes. It's likely that there were a thousand of them in the temple of Aphrodite. It was a part of what they did. But Paul, through the word, is saying, that's not who you are anymore. He's sharing with them the danger. And so we also should be thankful that God's Word shares with us what healthy sexual living looks like. We should be thankful that we have a God who wants us to be whole sexually, understanding that we've all struggled. Whether we're single, married, widowed, divorced, or anything, there is a multitude of ways that we can have fallen short, but we're not defined by that. We're more than our sexuality. We are image bearers, first and foremost. People created by God. I don't identify myself as a heterosexual or a homosexual or a bisexual. I'm a son of God. Or you're a daughter of God. And the good news is that we're defined by Jesus. And nothing that we can do will ever separate us from Him. Yes, there are boundaries. Covenantal marriage. But they're there for our flourishing. If we get rid of any of those boundaries, then anything goes. If love is the only standard for why someone can get married, then why not someone who loves someone of the same gender? Or someone who is a minor? Or someone who... Something that is an animal? Literally, people... Uh, I saw a story about a lady that said, I want to um, be married to my blanket because I love it so much. Now, obviously that's extreme and probably a little bit irrational. Remove it a little bit from the sentence. Uh, it's very irrational. But we see if the definition is just what I love, then what are the standards? You say, no way. But when we expand the category, anything beyond what it is, where does it end? And we're seeing that in the world around us today. So this speaks to us, how do we live? Uh, there's also you know, a lot of talk now in churches about sexuality, which is a, an important thing because maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, it wasn't something that was brought up. But notice that Paul is dealing with this here. The Bible tells us a lot about a lot of other things. How do we know how to love people? Um, it's an important matter that we should discuss. It's not the only matter, but it's just the one that we're talking about today. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with them. If we have union with Christ, we should not have union with sin of any kind. That's who you are now. What does he say in verse 18? Flee from sexual immorality. This is a strong command that he gives. He's not just saying, hey, try to limit this in your life. You know, uh, once a month is okay, but once a week is too much. No, what does he say? Flee. We just have this picture of Joseph in Potiphar's house when Potiphar's wife comes and seeks to have with him. What does he do? He runs away. He flees from sexual immorality such that his, his cloak or his coat is left behind. He is running away and that's the same posture that we should have. When tempted, we should turn and run. Shut down those vehicles that tempt you in life in this area. Why? So strong though. Every other sin he says, a person commits outside his body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, it's hard to know exactly what he means because there are other sins like, like gluttony that are bad for your body. But what he's getting at is that the union that takes place in the sexual relationship is much more than just a physical act. It's a mystical, spiritual union that is created between partners. And so he says, now that you're in Christ, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? whom you have from God, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Yes, we're spiritual beings. We were also physical beings. They're not separate. Uh, Dr. Julie Slattery says this, Sexuality must first and foremost be understood as an earthly aspect of humanity that points to a heavenly truth. That truth is that we were made for intimacy. We were created with deep longings to be known, embraced, and loved eternally by a God who will never leave us or forsake us. We were not created for sexual expression. We're not even created for marriage. We're created for intimacy. The greatest sex in marriage is a wonderful thing, but still a temporal pleasure meant to point to deeper longings. This is why the New Testament holds singleness in such high esteem. The ultimate good for a Christian is not a happy marriage, but surrender to and unity with Christ himself. Marriage and sexuality are holy metaphors to be honored, but should never become idols that overshadow our longing to know God himself. That's what sex is for. And when we understand who we are, this is who you were, but now this is who you are. So now you should live in a different way. A woman named Sarah Culberson was born in West Virginia in 1976. And, uh, when she was an infant, she was uh, given up into the foster care system because her parents were not able or unwilling uh, to take care of her. And thankfully, she was adopted by a family, a family that loved her and that loved God. And as she grew older, though, she desired to know about her biological parents. And so she began a search. And she found out that her, uh, by the time she learned about her mom, her mom had actually died 10 years earlier uh, from cancer. But then she learned about her dad. And she learned that her dad was a graduate student at the university uh, from Sierra Leone. And he had had uh, an encounter with her mom. But because he was an international student and she was here, uh, they felt like it was better to give her up into the system. And so she wrote her dad a letter. 
And what she learned about her dad was that he was a part of a significant family. She, she learned that she was actually a Mahaloi, or granddaughter of the paramount chief and accorded the status of princess by the Mendi people. So in writing a letter to her father and connecting with him, she realized that she was actually a princess. Now, not a bad thing to find out. I don't think most of the letters turn out like that. But it gave her a new sense of who she was. She says this, For me, it isn't like a fairy tale, though. It's about family, community, and responsibility. I feel like now I have a more profound sense of purpose and goals in life with the work that I'm doing in Sierra Leone. I would not choose to go back to how things were before my discovery because I have a more profound sense of myself and a bigger family than I could have ever imagined. Things were great before, but finding my birth family made things even better. She had a wonderful life, but then she had this greater picture of who she really was connected to this family of royalty. Friends, when we come to know Jesus Christ, we realize that we are connected to this family of royalty. It doesn't mean that we get to go on a parade and have uh, material wealth. But it gives us a sense of who we are. It changes our posture. It changes our purpose. And it changes how we face the temptation in this life that we all encounter. It means that we live differently. She didn't do anything to deserve this family line. But now that she's understood it, it's affected how she lives today. So here's what I'm inviting you to consider uh, this morning. Are you in the still living in the who we were? Are you still struggling with some something? Any one of those things that's listed in that first section as a pattern and a way of life. Consider the claims of Christ and the invitation that he has made to welcome you into his family to receive by grace the good news of the kingdom. Do you need to be reminded of who you are so that you can live faithfully under, the, under Christ? Do you need to flee from sexual immorality in any way? Or do you have a ministry to people who are in a struggle or who are in a difficulty that you can say, here's who I was, here's who I am. Now let me walk with you as you are processing the hardship of life that you've experienced because of either what happened to you or what you engaged in. Let me walk with you. What does it look like for us now that we've matured to serve the hurting world around us? Let's consider that and respond in obedience. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.